Lesson 1 for September 27 to October 3, James, the Lord's Brother, from the series The Book of James. Before commencing the lessons, let's read the introduction by the author, Clinton Wallen, PhD, who is an Associate Director of the Biblical Research Institute at the General Conference Headquarters. His expertise is in the New Testament and its relation to ancient Judaism. An American, he has lived and worked in Russia, New Zealand, United Kingdom and the Philippines. He and his wife Gina, who works at Adventist Mission, have two children, Daniel and Heather. It's titled, An Epistle of Straw. The Epistle of James has been one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible. In the Leipzig debate of 1519, Roman Catholic scholar Johann Eck used it to challenge Martin Luther's view of justification by faith alone, insisting that works needed to be added to the equation. Luther, in response, eventually denied the epistle's inspired authorship, mainly on the mistaken claim that it taught justification by works. In the introduction to his 1522 German translation of the New Testament, Luther indicated his preference for books like John, 1 John, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians and 1 Peter, which reveal Christ and teach everything that is needful and blessed to know. His preface to the book of James was even more negative. Luther called it really an epistle of straw, because it had nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Although Luther never removed it from the canon of Scripture, he separated it from what he considered the core of the canon. Luther's emphasis on Paul's epistles, especially Romans and Galatians, and his rejection of James for anything more than devotional value, has influenced a large segment of Christian thinking through the centuries. Who was James, anyway? Was he a legalist, combating Paul's idea of justification by faith by teaching that justification is really by works? Or was he simply providing a slightly different perspective on the subject, similar to the several perspectives on the teachings of Jesus that we find in the Gospels? The answer is clearly the latter. Not all of the Reformers shared Luther's low opinion of James. No less a luminary than Melanchthon, Luther's oldest associate, believed that the writings of Paul and James were not in conflict. James had a first-hand knowledge of Jesus. In fact, his epistle, of all the epistles, may very well be the earliest Christian writing in existence, and, of all the epistles, reflects most closely the teachings of Jesus that we find in the Gospels. As in the parables of Jesus, imagery from agriculture and the world of finance is abundant. Other important themes include wisdom, prayer, and above all, faith. James is unique in other ways too, thereby opening a window for us into some of the struggles that the earliest Christian congregations faced. With envy, jealousy and worldliness creeping into the fold, there seems to have been societal and cultural pressures that pitted wealthier Christians against poor ones. We also see the great controversy being played out as James attacks counterfeit forms of wisdom and faith. Most important for Seventh-day Adventists, 
The epistle of James exudes confidence in the return of Jesus. It also provides crucial perspectives on the law, the judgment, and the second coming. Elijah is even presented as a model for us to emulate. This has special relevance for us as Seventh-day Adventists who are entrusted with preparing the way for Christ's second advent. Thus, in some ways, our journey this quarter spans the entire Christian era, as it includes some of the earliest preaching, as well as special insights for these last days. Sabbath afternoon, September 27. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to a new quarter. We come to a new series of lessons about this little tiny book at the back of the Old Testament. And as we do so, as we read the book of James, as we open it up, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be there to guide us. We also pray for our daily needs as well that you will be there to bless, and that we may know that you are someone who can be trusted. Bless us now as we open your word this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is John chapter 15 and verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Let's read that again. John 15 verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. We today are a long way from the early days of the Christian Church, both time-wise and culturally. Thus, we have little idea of what it was like to belong to the fledgling Christian movement at a time when many congregations met in homes and most believers were Jews persecuted by their fellow Israelites. The letter of James gives us one of the earliest glimpses of Jewish Christianity before it disappeared in the fog of Jewish-Christian controversies and before the marginalization of the Jews by the predominantly Gentile church of the second century and beyond. Unlike many of the epistles, it does not seem that some crisis or urgent need in a local church impelled James to write this epistle. Rather, it is written to the broader Christian community, scattered abroad, as he says in James 1, verse 1. Before we dive into this letter, however, this week we want to try and learn what we can about the author himself. Some of the questions we'll address are, who was James? What was his background? What had been his relationship to Jesus? And what position did he hold in the church? Sunday, September 28, James, the brother of Jesus. The author of this letter must have been well known in the church because there's no more specific information in this letter as to who he is other than what we find in James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. 
Thus we can narrow down the options of his identity pretty quickly. Four people in the New Testament are named James. There are two of the twelve disciples, recorded in Mark 3, verses 17 and 18, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite. There is the father of Judas, another of the twelve, but not Judas Iscariot, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 16, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor, and one of Jesus' brothers mentioned in Mark 6.3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Of these four, only the brother of Jesus lived long enough and was prominent enough in the church to have penned such a letter. Thus we believe that it was James, the brother of Jesus, who authored this New Testament book. As a carpenter's son, as recorded in Matthew 13.55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? As a carpenter's son, James would have had more educational opportunities than would a common peasant. His letter is among the best examples of literary Greek in the New Testament. Its rich vocabulary, rhetorical flair, and command of the Old Testament are surpassed only by Hebrews. Because his name appears first in the list of Jesus' brothers, James was probably the eldest son. However, the fact that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to John, the beloved disciple, in John 19, verses 26 and 27, suggests that his brothers were not Mary's own children, but the sons of Joseph by a previous marriage. Let's read John 19, verses 26 and 27. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. Question. In the context of Jesus' ministry, read this verse in Mark 3.21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Let's read what it says in John 7, verses 2 to 5. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And the question, what do these texts tell us about how Jesus had been perceived by his own family? What lessons can we draw from them for ourselves, if indeed at times we find ourselves misunderstood by those whom we love? And a lovely quote from The Desire of Ages, page 485 to 486. It was a false conception of the Messiah's work and a lack of faith in the divine character of Jesus that had led his brothers to urge him to present himself publicly to the people at the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Monday, September 29, James the Believer. Question. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 to 7, and Acts chapter 1, verse 14. What do they tell us about the changes that happened to James? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 to 7. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And Acts chapter 1 verse 14, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Jesus appeared to many after his resurrection, including Peter and the Twelve, minus Judas Iscariot, of course. Then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. James apparently wasn't at this meeting with the 500. Jesus appeared to him separately, and that appearance must have been special because it's specifically noted here. Whatever happened at that meeting, the Bible doesn't say. It must have made a big impact on him, though, for James did become a faithful follower of Jesus and an influential leader in the church. Question. What else do we know about James? Well, we'll look at a number of verses. First of all, Acts chapter 12, verse 16 and 17. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. And chapter 15, verse 13 and 14. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, and with this the words of the prophets agree. And verse 19 in Acts chapter 15. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. And Acts chapter 21 verses 17 to 19. And when we had come to Jerusalem... The brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And then we'll look at Galatians chapter 1 and verse 18. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And chapter 2 and verse 9. Galatians 2, 9. And when James, Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. James quickly became a leading figure in the Jerusalem church. 
After his rescue from prison by the angel in A.D. 44, Peter wanted James to know what had happened to him as he read in Acts 12.17. Five years later, James presided at and announced the decision of the Jerusalem Council. Paul mentions him first, before Peter and John, in his listings of the pillars in Jerusalem in Galatians 2.9. Several years after this event, in A.D. 58, when Paul brought the collection of the poor in Jerusalem from the various churches, the delegates from each church in turn laid the offerings at the feet of James. James appears to have been held in high esteem for many decades after the death of the Apostles. In fact, so many legends developed about his piety that he is remembered as James the Just. Thus, despite starting out in a great doubt about Jesus, James ended up being a spiritual giant in the early church. Tuesday, September 30, James and the Gospel. Unfortunately, perhaps because of Luther's influence, many Christians have been unable to see the important message James' epistle contains. Without diminishing the contribution Luther made for the church of his day, we must remember that the Reformation did not end with Luther. It is to be continued to the close of this world's history because grave errors were perpetuated by the Reformers and many important truths were still to be revealed. We read in The Story of Redemption, page 353. Thus, the need for the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards, George Whitefield and the Wesley brothers who gave birth to the Methodist movement and its emphasis on the vital role of holiness in the Christian life. The work of reform continued with the Second Awakening, through which God raised up Seventh-day Adventists to proclaim the Third Angel's message. This worldwide proclamation culminates with the Spirit-filled witness of a people who, as it says in Revelation 14.12, keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Question. Read. James 1, 3, 2, 5, 2, 22 and 23 and 5, 15. How does faith function in these passages? What do they tell us about what it means to live by faith? How do they show us that faith is more than just an intellectual assent to various propositional truths? James 1, verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And James chapter 2 verses 22 and 23. Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. And James chapter 5 verse 15, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It may come as a surprise to some that James refers to believing and faith 
19 times in his short letter, more than his references to works and justification combined. In fact, the importance of faith is stressed right at the beginning of the first chapter in connection with trials and asking for wisdom in verses 3 and 6. Let's have a look at those. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. This shows that James was not only writing to believers, but that he expects them to have a certain quality of faith. As we will see, the act of believing in itself is of little avail. True faith carries certain recognisable credentials. That is, true faith will be revealed in the life and character of the believer. So, to finish today... What things do you do on a daily basis that reveal the quality and reality of your faith? How can you show the reality of your faith, even in the small things? Wednesday, October 1, the Twelve Tribes Scattered Abroad Question. Read James chapter 1, verse 1, Acts 11, 19-21, and 1 Peter 2, 9-10. Who are these twelve tribes, and how did they become so widely scattered? Well, let's begin with James 1, 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. And Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 21. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose after Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching to the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turn to the Lord. And first Peter chapter two verses nine to ten. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. As we have seen, James wrote to the believers. At first, the gospel work was focused in Jerusalem. We read that in Luke 24:47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. But, as a result of persecution, which intensified after the stoning of Stephen, these believers were scattered, and the seed of the gospel was planted throughout the cities and surrounding regions of the Roman Empire. According to Acts chapter 11, the gospel spread to the Gentiles quite early, beginning in Antioch. So the twelve tribes probably refers to Christians as a whole. 
there do not seem to have been different congregations based on ethnicity, which is why the Jerusalem Council soon had to decide whether believing Gentiles should first become Jews by being circumcised. We read about that in Acts 15.1-6, in order to become Christians. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Question. Read Acts chapter 15, verses 13 to 21. How does James address the problem the early church struggled with? And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, and with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down, I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things." Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. A scriptural solution presented a unified church. James cites Amos's prophecy that Israel's restoration and ultimate expansion would include Gentiles, a decree that is based on Mosaic laws for foreign residents themselves in Leviticus chapters 18, 19 and 20. James addresses his readers as the twelve tribes to remind them of their identity as fellow heirs of the promise made to Abraham. Peter has a similar idea in mind when he describes Christians as a holy nation in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. And we'll compare that with Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me, above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And it's also addressing those scattered abroad, as he says in First Peter one one. The Greek word in both passages is diaspora, 
which diaspora is the term we use these days, which normally referred to Jews living outside the geographical boundaries of Israel proper. John 7.35 Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So to finish today, a church scattered abroad? Sounds like us as Seventh-day Adventists. Despite the vast cultural, ethnic and social differences among us, what unites Seventh-day Adventists in Christ as a distinctive Protestant movement? Thursday, October 2, James and Jesus. James had the opportunity to observe Jesus when he was a child, a youth, and an adult. Then at some point, James not only believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but became a leader of the Christians in Jerusalem. And yet, James calls himself not a brother, but a bondservant in the very first verse, James 1.1, of Jesus. Clearly, James learned humility and true wisdom. Not surprisingly, these are also important themes of his letter. Let's look at some of these. Uh, James 1, verses 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. And the same chapter, verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace, but those by those who make peace. And chapter 4, verses 6 to 10. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Question. Compare the following passages and summarize what they have in common. 
Well, first of all, James one twenty two, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And we compare that with Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall down, for it was founded on the rock. But every one who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And James chapter 3 verse 12 Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt, water, and fresh. And we compare that with Matthew 7.16. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? And James chapter 4 verse 12 There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? And we'll compare that with Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. The affinity the letter of James has with the teachings of Jesus, and particularly the Sermon on the Mount, has been widely recognized. Peter H. Davids, in the Epistle of James, published in 1982, page 50, says, Jesus' pervasive influence underlies the whole of James' teaching. From a close comparison of James with the Gospels, it appears that this letter is not dependent on any of them. Rather, James writes from an intimate and personal acquaintance with the teachings of Jesus, who always inspired his listeners to faith and challenged them to exercise it. As we study the book of James this quarter, we'll find a very similar approach. James is not content with a weak, fruitless or vacillating faith. As we will see next week, faith dominates the early part of the book, and James shows how this crucial quality undergirds a vital relationship with Christ. So, to finish today, dwell on the quality and reality of your own faith. How real is it? How deep does it go? How does it enable you to live the Christian life? What things could you do and what choices could you make that can help improve the quality and depth of your faith? Friday, October 3. From the book The Desire of Ages, page 326, I read, His brothers often brought forward the philosophy of the Pharisees, which was threadbare and hoary with age, and presumed to think that they could teach him who understood all truth and comprehended all mysteries. They freely condemned that which they could not understand. Their reproaches probed him to the quick, and his soul was wearied and distressed. They avowed faith in God, and thought they were vindicating God, when God was with them in the flesh, and they knew him not. 
These things made his path a thorny one to travel. So pained was Christ by the misapprehension in his own home that it was a relief to him to go where it did not exist. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, the letter of James is essentially a handbook on practical Christian living. It may even have been the first New Testament book written, sometime between A.D. 44 and 49. That is, besides it being a book of theology, it also tells us how to live out the Christian life. Why is living out what we believe just as, if not more important than what we believe? Or is what we believe more important than how we live out our belief? For instance, what's better a sincere Sunday keeper who truly and seriously keeps the first day of the week holy, or an insincere Sabbath keeper who keeps the seventh day Sabbath but doesn't really take it all that seriously. Give reasons for your answer. 2. As we have seen in Sunday's study, James was the brother of Jesus. In other words, though Jesus was God himself, the creator of all that was made, it, he was also human, one of us even to the point that he had siblings. How does this amazing concept help us to understand how the vast gap between heaven and a fallen world was bridged? What does it say to us too about the length that God goes to in order to save fallen humanity? How does the humanity of Christ help us understand how we can have victory over sin? How does the humanity of Christ assure us that God understands the reality of our toils and struggles? And three, this week's lesson mentioned that humility was a theme in James's letter. Why is humility so important in the Christian life? That is, in light of the cross, what happened here? How dare any of us ever assume an attitude of arrogance or self-importance, especially when it comes to spiritual matters? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled God's Guiding Voice, and it comes from Jacques Césaire, who is a house painter by trade and serves his church as a lay pastor and first elder in Mourne Pitalt in Martinique. God's Guiding Voice. As teens, my friends and I partied and drank, but I was not satisfied. I was searching for meaning, but didn't know what it was or where to find it. Often, when we were away from the crowd, our conversation drifted toward religious topics. Frequently, we talked about the existence of God. One boy, Felix, seemed to know a lot about God. I didn't know it, but his family was Seventh-day Adventist. Although Felix was not active in the church, his childhood training was having a positive influence on us. Felix sometimes told us stories from the Bible. I had never heard these stories and thought they were fairy tales, so Felix brought me a Bible so I could read the stories. Then I found some prophecies. I didn't understand them and asked Felix what they meant. He said I wouldn't understand unless I prayed before reading. I laughed, but he insisted. I tried it, and it worked. 
As I continued reading, I learned that our bodies are the temple of God and that we should not defile them with unclean foods or impure habits. I told Felix that I had decided to stop going to dances and parties and to stop smoking, drinking and even eating unclean foods. I thought he would be surprised, but he agreed. He told me that I should go to the Seventh-day Adventist church. He even offered to go with me. On Saturday morning, the phone rang. Felix had decided to go to work instead of church, but he had been injured in a motorcycle accident. I hurried to the hospital, but learned that he had been transferred to another hospital. It was almost nine o'clock. I prayed, Lord, what should I do? Should I go to the other hospital or go to church? I felt impressed to go to church, and I'm glad I did. I began attending church regularly. When Felix was released from the hospital, he came to church with me once but never returned. He is still using drugs, smoking, and disregarding God's laws. My younger brother saw the difference God was making in my life, and he attended church with me. Then my other brothers and a sister began attending church. Eventually, we all were baptized. But my parents resisted. The pastor asked me to lead a small group. I prayed and asked my parents if I could hold the meetings in their home. They agreed to let me use their front porch. When the group began singing, my mother stepped closer to the window. Soon she came out and sat down. The next evening my father joined us. When evangelistic meetings began, my parents attended all the meetings and decided to be baptised. Knowing how they felt when I began attending church, I found it hard to realize that within four years, my entire family had become united to the Adventist church. We are all actively involved in church ministries today. Good on you, Jack. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.